Please join me in opening up God's Word to Matthew chapter 2, our passage under consideration for this morning. Now, I know that people get animated about how long you're able to leave up your Christmas tree, leave out your lights, still play Christmas music. And as you may have looked ahead and noticed, this morning we have a traditional Christmas passage before us in Matthew chapter 2. But I would suggest that it is more like an epilogue to the Christmas story than a traditional Christmas passage would suggest. For in verse 1, it says, after the birth of Jesus. In verse 11, we discover that Jesus is no longer in a manger, but his parents have found a house. And then in verse 7, Herod discerns the exact time Jesus has been born. And then just outside of our passage, in verse 16, we discover Herod evidently thought Jesus could be as old as two years. So this is more like an 18-month Jesus narrative. Jesus has a toddler than a birth story, but I think for our purposes, a very fitting epilogue to the Christmas story. Let's hear now from God's Word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly And found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And now having heard your word for us this morning, we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives. So please illuminate our mind and open our hearts and ready our will to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. About a week before Christmas every year, I ask my lovely wife, Allison, to purchase for me a carton of eggnog. I then proceed to, several nights a week, pour myself a small glass sprinkled with a little bit of nutmeg on top to savor the rich flavor from eggnog. But right about now, the carton runs dry, and I'm confronted with the harsh reality that some have called the holiday hangover, an emotional hangover, if you will. We asked for treasures, presents, gifts, company, 
that we expected perhaps more from than we should have. And so the ultra definition AKTV on the wall is wonderful, but there's actually no new shows to watch on it. Or we have the newest iPhone and it is sparkling, but it actually can't do anything that our old phone couldn't. We had high hopes for our time with our family, but then there were callous words spoken, there was tension, and now there's relational fallout. Or perhaps, like me, you are pining for different traditions that we've repeated throughout the years that offer this sense of nostalgia, this sense of fullness, of storyline in our lives by reliving the past, but things didn't go right. Traditions changed, or at the very least, they are now over. The reason could be because we treasure lesser things. This morning, God's word invites us to treasure Jesus above all else. You know, the bookends of our passage emphasize the worship of this new Messiah. In verse 2, the Magi come to worship Jesus. That's what they tell Herod. And it ends with them finally reaching their destination where the Magi worship Jesus and lay their treasures at his feet. Now, worship comes from this old English word, worthship. It's ascribing worth to something. And that's why one pastor, John Piper, puts it this way, defining worship as treasuring God as he deserves. That's a fitting definition, particularly for our passage this morning. And it invites us to ask the question, why should we treasure Jesus above all else? And God's word provides three reasons. Jesus gives a better plan, fuller wisdom, and greater joy. We're invited to treasure Jesus above all else because he gives a better plan, fuller wisdom, and greater joy. First, let's look how Jesus gives a better plan. Verses 2 and 3, we read, The Magi ask, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod's plans are suddenly threatened, leading to this great sense of disturbance for him and everyone around him. I guess he kind of gave off that presence. Herod receives news, which he would have heard, as the seeds of a new insurrection growing in his midst. Herod was called by antiquity as Herod the Great. He was king of the Jews. It's not too hard to understand Herod, or anyone for that matter, if you know what they treasure. And we know from the the context the Bible gives us of his character, as well as from ancient histories, that Herod treasured power. And Herod was not about to give up his treasure, his power, to some new king, and so he makes a plan to prevent this. And we hear about this plan in our passage. In verse 4, Herod interrogates the people's chief priests and teachers of the law as to the location, the where, of this new Messiah. And then in verse 7, Herod secretly interrogates the Magi to find out the when, the exact time that this Messiah has been born. And so then he deceives the Magi in verse 8, telling them, go and search carefully for this child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Herod's plan relies on him using and abusing his power to preserve what he treasures. 
Yet despite Herod's formidable, formidable political power, he cannot foil God's plan of working not through the strong, but through the weak. You see, instead of using the strong people of this world, God delights to use the weak and the small and the forgotten to accomplish his glorious purposes. And so we find Jesus not in the capital city of Jerusalem where kings reigned, but in the backwater of Bethlehem, the wrong side of the train tracks. And every town has a wrong side. I live in West Orange. We have a wrong side. It's the southeast section of the, of the hill line. Here in Montclair, there's a, a wrong side, if you were, the, the southeast quadrant of Montclair. And that's exactly where Jesus chooses to be born, in the most modest of the town. And Jesus, the king of kings, has now humbled himself to be born as a baby. At 18 months, he would be taking his first steps, learning his first words from his father and his mother. Not exactly a picture of power. And, Jesus, and Joseph and Mary are poor, soon-to-be refugee teenagers. With no family or friends in town, they're new there, alone and, humanly speaking, defenseless. The Magi are Gentile foreigners in the land of a powerful and dangerous king. And yet God's plan works through the weak and the small and the overlooked. And so in verse 12, the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, which allows precious time for Joseph and Mary to make their escape, we'll see in the passage afterwards, uh, away from Herod as well as perhaps giving Herod one final opportunity to repent. And so too would be the entire trajectory of Jesus, the Messiah's life, one of him operating not out of the power which he could have possessed, but out of his weakness and humility, doing the unlikely, the unexpected places, the forgotten places of the world he ministered, and so would grow and eventually the culmination of this is his death on the cross, showing his complete weakness and allowing himself to die so as to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Herod's plan counted on the strong and the mighty moving the events of the world, yet God's plan counted on the weak and the vulnerable. And so it's summarized well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, saying, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Like Herod, our plans often count on our strength, but God's plan counts on our weakness. A couple of years ago, Alice and I had the opportunity to vacation for two months at the beginning of August to her family in upstate New York. But before we left, I had finally gone around to taking out this huge obstructive bush in front of our picture window and planted four nice small bushes in its place. And I was really excited about these bushes, but I have a terrible track record at keeping anything green alive. But we happen to have a neighbor, whom I'll call Susan, that clearly has a green thumb that she's cultivated over decades of gardening. Her passion is to work in her yard, and we benefit by enjoying it from our front window every day. So I worked out a plan for myself to preserve my bushes while I was away for two weeks. I asked her if she would care for my bushes in my stead, to water them while I was away in their infancy in my yard, and she generously said yes. And so, you know, I tried to get everything set up to make the request as reasonable as possible. I got the water on, I got the hose right out next to the bushes so she could simply pick it up 
water them and be done for the, the several days we'd be gone. Two weeks go by. I return. And upon unloading our packed minivan, I get this feeling in the pit of my stomach that I'd forgotten something. Before leaving, I had shut off the main water valve to our house, thereby denying my neighbor any opportunity to water our bushes. And so I approach with trepidation the front window of our house to look upon these bushes I've consigned to a hot doom. And I go over and look at them, and I am utterly surprised. Instead of withering, they, sh they glow like emerald green in the sun. They're beautiful. And they're blanketed by mulch now, which I hadn't put there. So later that day, I go across the street to my neighbor, and I ask her, Susan, I'm, I'm so sorry I turned off the water, but what happened? And she continues to explain to me how her and her two sisters, all in their 60s, formed a sort of bucket brigade to bring water 100 feet across the street to my house several times over the course of this two weeks to keep alive these precious bushes. My plans totally fell apart by my own mistake. And yet God provided through the surprising strength and amazing generosity of my neighbors. And God is in the business of surprising us in such a way. It's his plan to use the weak, the forgotten, the overlooked things of this world to accomplish his great purposes. This morning, if you feel weak or small or forgotten, God delights to use such people in his amazing plan to lay low the mighty, to humble the proud, to move mountains, to make all things new. So when our plans fall apart, when our career plans, we plan to stay with a job and to make our way up and yet we're let go, or we plan to retire but our account takes a hit, we plan to get married, we plan to have kids, we, we never plan to get divorced but our plans change. We plan to go to a certain college, but we receive a rejection letter. Our plans often rely on us being strong, on being capable to move events, yet God is in the business, friends, of using the weak and the small and the forgotten. So treasure Jesus because he has a better plan than this world provides. But second, because Jesus gives a fuller wisdom than this world offers. We see this in verse 2, um, verse 1 really, where the, we're introduced to the Magi. These surprising figures were told regrettably little about. I wish we knew more. They are Magi from the East, these, these wise men sought by rulers for wisdom, well-educated philosophers of their day. Uh, we, we know a little bit from the book of Daniel, actually, 500 years before the time of Christ. We read in the book of Daniel these, these people that are often translated into English as magicians, but in the ancient translation in Greek of that text, the book of Daniel, they're called magi. And then the English word that comes to us in our, our Bibles this morning, magi, is a, if you're familiar with translation, it's a transliteration. Which means, you know, often when we have words in a different language, we'll use our own words to describe about the meaning of that word from a different language. But sometimes translators throw up their hands and say, I don't know what to do with it. And they just copy and paste the word from the other language in the best that we can pronounce it in our own. That's what transliteration is. And that's what magi is. The, the, the Greek word in, for these people is magi. 
And several times in the book of Daniel, we, we hear about these magi. They, they were these ones serving the Babylonian and Persian kings, interpreting dreams, dreams and signs. And, you know, over time, roles change and words gather new meanings. But we presume that something has remained the same for the magi we meet here now, almost 600 years later, in Matthew 2. Whatever it may be, the magi moved to make a 1,600-mile journey from likely Persia or Babylon, that's uh, what the, the east would be in reference to, all the way to Jerusalem. Not, not Bethlehem, but to Jerusalem, because they connected this new star heralding the birth of the Jewish Messiah. And so, in examining the Magi's belief, I have to speculate that they had both truth and half-truths in their worldview. In verse 2, they recognized this new star rise. In that, in that sense, they had a true belief, a true understanding of astronomy. They had mapped the night sky, the stars in it, in such a way that the new one appearing, they noted. And uh, this is remarkable. But further, they took it as a sign to go to the, the capital in Judea, in Jerusalem, and, and, and knew that it marked the arrival of a new king. And this is where I can only surmise that there must be something of a half-truth, truth mixed with, with other things. For in associating the star with the birth of the king, I have to speculate that from the time of Daniel, you know, there, there was a significant influential Jewish population in Babylon, in Persia, that, that must have passed on their hope in the Messiah from God's word. And whether they knew something of that or just rumors had remained, nevertheless, they make the decision to link this star, new star in the sky, with the Jewish Messiah's birth. And they are compelled, they're, they're desirous enough to make this incredible journey to discover this new king. Nevertheless, they could not have found the king apart from God revealing from his word more. And we see that in verse 5, where they only actually make it to Jerusalem, which would have been the capital. It's, it's where you would meet kings, and, but the king is not there. Herod himself does not know, so he has to consult God's word to discover where this king will be born. And it's only when Herod shares with them that they're directed to continue onwards. And then again, the star appears in the sky. But note, it's not the star that leads them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And yes, it goes before them, but you, you would not need some miracle to lead you from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It's eight kilometers, five miles. It's a two-hour walk on a bad day. They would have known where Bethlehem was standing from the height of Jerusalem. It's God's word that reveals to them where the king will be in Bethlehem. And yet the star appears as this wonderful confirmation to them that brings them great joy and so the star stopped over Bethlehem. But the Magi would have needed to ask around to discern the exact house Jesus was, for, of course, stars are very high in the sky and can't pinpoint with that accuracy. And so one biblical scholar, D.A. Carson, puts it this way. After coming to Bethlehem, Magi could have found the house from asking around since shepherds had loudly proclaimed his birth in town. And after all, Bethlehem is a very small town. So as special and miraculous as the natal star is, it's not the star that gets them to Jesus. It's God's word. For apart from God's word, they never would have found Jesus. And because God had, through his word, spoken to them, the wise men grow wiser still. 
And they come in contact with the Word made flesh, God, whom we could never have come to know of our own works, of our own striving, has revealed himself to us, and in these last days come down in the person of Jesus Christ to us. Our own wisdom is not enough to find God, yet God has revealed himself to us. Some of you know that I had the pleasure of serving as an RA, a resident assistant, assistant on a freshman floor in Gettysburg for a couple years. And one of the lovely people I had the opportunity of meeting was a young woman named Olga, who was five foot four, Swedish exchange student to Gettysburg, and treated everyone without exception on our floor like she was their mom. And it was wonderful. I've never gotten through the month of October without getting a cold, and that October was no different. And when Olga learned that I was sick, she sprung to action and met me at my dorm room door with a large container of garlic powder and proceeded with alarming zeal to tell me that I needed to apply copious amounts of garlic to all my food if I wanted to get better. What do you use as a cure for the common cold? You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting question that I've asked over the years to different people and picked up surprising answers. Uh, I've noted that Olga is far from alone in having a, a passionate favorite homeopathic remedy. Everyone's got something they believe in. Maybe it's Oba's nasal spray, zinc lozenges, herbal tea. Truth be told, I harbor some doubts about Oba's prescription of copious amounts of garlic curing the common cold, but I really don't have the means to evaluate that truth claim. I would need to trust some expert who understood in depth the cause of the common cold to reveal to me a solution that is effective. Friends, I think we all have a mixed bag of beliefs wrapped up in our worldview. Truths and half-truths and outright falsehoods. Our world, then, offers all kinds of solutions, all kinds of answers to these questions. Perhaps the greatest being, what should we treasure? What is valuable? How we should live, how we should worship, what we should love? God invites us to receive a fuller wisdom, to, to hear directly from him in his word, to know who God is, who we are, and what we should worship. He shows the difference between a life worth living and a life wasted. What real love looks like and how to love someone in earnest. And what real treasure is. This this new year, do you treasure Jesus enough to long to hear from him in his word? You know, it's, 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 it's fine to hear secondhand from preachers like myself, but, but God has made himself known and speaks today through his word. You don't have to take it from me. You can hear from Jesus in his word. To know Jesus well enough to be offended by him, to be challenged by him, to be comforted by him. So why not make a resolution in this new year to hear from God's word every day to receive your daily bread, this spiritual nourishment every day firsthand from its source, to open your Bible or put in earbuds, and, and as you're on your commute, as you're making dinner, as you're on the school bus, to hear God's word him speak to you, because Jesus gives a fuller wisdom through his word. And finally, 
we should treasure Jesus because he gives greater joy. The Magi, having met Herod, are undeterred and leave that very night for Bethlehem. We know it's at night because stars are only visible at night. And it would have been very unusual in their day to travel at night because it was very dangerous. There are no street lights or flashlights or sidewalks. There are robbers and thieves lying in wait for passerbys. But they couldn't wait. And you know what this is like. If you've ever driven through the night so excited to reach your destination, maybe it's a vacation, maybe it's to see family, that you're willing to drive through those dark hours of the early morning, so too the Magi. And we read in verse 10, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Traveling by night, they can see the star once again in the night sky. And they read this correctly as a confirmation of their purpose. And it brings them joy. It says they were overjoyed. Which the NIV correctly, which is our translation here, correctly translates. But you can, in the more wooden translation of the ESV, it, I think it makes more apparent how heavily underscored the, the joy of the Magi are here. It, it, the ESV reads this. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Joy, 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 joy. The Magi are beside themselves. Here he is. They're right about to meet him. And so we come to verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bowed down to this Messiah, this, this toddler king, and they worship him. They open these costly treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh and lay them at his feet. Contrast this with Herod and the chief priests and the scribes who know well that they've heard this announcement of a Messiah and they know better than others where he is. And yet they miss out on this joy that so grips the Magi's hearts. For at least Herod, a star brighter than his own is so threatening that he'd kill to put it out. But contrast that with the Magi. Where instead of seeing Jesus' star outshining their own, they find joy in its light. So they can prostrate themselves before this new king. Where do you find joy? Bree Johnson is a member of Redeemer Manhattan and shared her story publicly in one of their uh, redemption stories. And she shares this. Everything I achieved defined who I was. Within five years, Bree had gone from entry level to executive director of her company, and she took great pride and joy in her achievements, in her salary, in her job title. But then, when, with the arrival of her first child, she suddenly and unexpectedly became a stay-at-home mom. It wasn't planned, but that just seemed like the only option available to her. And in this, she shares, she experienced a loss of identity. She no longer had her job, her title, salary, or achievements. No one was applauding the work that she was doing anymore. She felt embarrassed. To share with her former colleagues, she felt lazy and she judged herself. 
And having gone to church at Redeemer, she continued so. But then one Sunday, she read about an opportunity in the church bulletin to go on a short-term mission trip to India, and she took it. And one night, worshiping in the red-light district of Mumbai, Bree sang praises to Jesus alongside Indian women who knew what it was like to receive a lot of judgment from others. Shocked by their love and passion for their Savior, though. They knew the weight of their sin, but also the amazing forgiveness of God's grace. And their joy challenged and changed Bree. And so returning to the States, Bree reshifted her focus, no longer finding her joy as much in her own achievements or others' praise, but by Jesus' achievement, graciously given to her. Where do you find your joy? You know, often we look to others and compare ourselves to others seeking to find joy there. And this trap of envy, wanting what others have that we do not, or perhaps fear of man, wanting others' praise and finding joy in their acclaim. You know, this is often found nowadays in social media where we can so quickly and immediately measure ourselves against others, looking at pictures and scrolling and seeing how many likes ours have received. But I'm reminded most immediately of the old school version of this, which are Christmas cards, where we read about others' lives over the past year, how successful their kids are, how beautiful their families are, how splendid their vacations are. And we think of bank accounts and salaries and cars and compare and compare and find envy, and instead of joy, we find discontent. But this morning, God invites us to follow along with the Magi to the feet of Jesus and in the light of his star to find joy at his feet. The Magi could not contain their joy, so come with them to Jesus and experience the joy that he can provide. This morning in God's word, we've been invited to treasure Jesus above all else because Jesus provides a greater joy, a fuller wisdom, and a better plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this season of gift-giving and receiving treasures, We are grateful for this reminder, this pointer to what the greatest treasure is, that you have not left us alone to guess at who you are and what you want of us, but you came down from heaven to save us, to be with us, to love us. And for this, we ask that you would be our greatest treasure. In Jesus' name, amen.